Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 342. The Respect Sextet provide the theme music for this show. You'll find them online at two places, respectsextet.com and also respectsextet.bandcamp.com where you can buy their music digitally and download it. And you should do that and enjoy because they are fantastic. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel. He designed the show's logo and made it look pretty all those years ago. It's almost five years now since he did that and since this show started. So thanks to Dave. He's online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. My thanks to All About Jazz for carrying this show on their website, allaboutjazz.com. They've got a widget that you can install on your website that will show the latest episode of the Jazz Session. To find that, the easiest thing to do is go to allaboutjazz.com and type in Jazz Session Widget, and then you can put it on your website, and if you need help doing that, let me know. And if you do it, as many people already have, also let me know, because I will feature your website in my newsletter. This show is membership-supported. That means that people just like you who listen to and enjoy the show kick in a little bit of money each month or each year to help keep the show going. And by help keep the show going, I literally mean help keep me living. It is the the show's uh, memberships that keep me indoors and fed. And so if you want to keep the show going and want to keep me sleeping indoors and eating, then I encourage you to become a member. It's very easy to do that. Just go to thejazzsession.com slash join. There are three monthly levels and three yearly levels, and all of them help me immensely. So choose whichever one works best for you. But I'll just note that at the middle and upper levels right now, either monthly or yearly, the next two people to sign up at those levels will get a copy of Anthony Wilson's CD-DVD set, Seasons, which is a very cool thing. Uh, but really, any level of membership is fantastic. So uh, please do go to thejazzsession.com slash join and become a member. My guest today is a pianist and composer named Tom Wetmore, whose new CD is called The Desired Effect. From it, let's hear Red Lights.
My guest is Tom Wetmore. His new CD is called The Desired Effect on his own Crosstown Records. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks a lot. It's my pleasure. So I like uh, both the things that I've read about you, things I've read you say, and even in just the liner notes of this record, um, you seem to be really... This may seem like a dumb thing to say, but really focused on the music, uh, really focused on the experience of making music and the experience that people are going to have listening to it. And yep. uh, I wonder if you could talk about a little bit about why you, I mean, you really make a point of emphasizing that, which I think is kind of cool. Well, I think music is a really, really beautiful thing, and um, I've made it my life. And I don't want to take myself too seriously. I think a lot of people have that problem, but I've got to take it seriously as a craft and believe in it really strongly. So this album, I kind of felt very strongly that I didn't want to have any ideas or promote any messages, but just make sure that the music that the music stood for itself and the music was to make the world just a little bit of a more beautiful place and, you know, separate it from anything in the real world that isn't music. So that's my whole philosophy. And do you feel like that's a departure from how you often approach the act of composition or performance? It's not different than anything I've ever done, but I've never really made a very strong creative um, product that is very focused, and I can say everything about this project is mine, everything mm. about this is true, and everything about this is the way I want my music to be. And that goes down to everything. I mean, the photography, um, I did all the graphic design myself. So I took that really seriously. But of course, the central point of that is the music. And I wanted the music really to have nothing to do with anything except the music itself. And you know, that's a pretty (laughs) complicated system. It's very simple, but it's a pretty, pretty serious thing for me. Yeah. What um, given that, given that that hope or that expectation, do you have any uh, maybe desires or wishes for what you expect the listener to bring to the equation? Virtually nothing, except for one thing that I did mention in the, li- the liner notes. It was to just really, really listen to it. Like it, it can be one time. I mean, I'm a musician, and listening to music is one of the most serious and important parts of my life. And some of the most beautiful moments in my life have been when I, when music has been the only thing happening. Like the, the lights are turned down low and everybody else is asleep and I'm listening to a record or I'm at a, a performance and I don't have to talk to anybody else and I can really focus in on what's happening. But all that being said, for someone who takes it so seriously and, and really those are the most profound moments of my life, I don't get to do that very much. I mean, there are albums that I love profoundly that I you know I've never had you know 50 minutes in a row where I've really focused so when I say in the liner notes I have this simple request just listen really listen that's a pretty tough request I think and if anybody can do that you know my world will be better I don't even have to know if they did it but if someone does that that makes the music really worth it and if they hate it that's fine um if they you know if it makes that hour of their life worse i'm sorry Uh, i don't want to do that (laughs) but that's what i want you know and ideally i would want somebody to sit there and the lights be turned low and have the type of reaction i have to the stuff that i really love you know that would be great i don't know if that will ever happen uh but if that happened that would be ideal 
But the point is not to blow anybody's mind, though I'd love to. The point is to connect, really. You know, music, I think, a lot of people think music can really get a point across. And sometimes it can if you're Bob Dylan or you're somebody that writes profound words that have to do with your time or have to do with a certain subject. And that can really, really happen. Uh, but some music is profound because it doesn't do that. And that's the type of music that I really am attracted to specifically. So I want the music to be something that they can connect to. Uh, it doesn't have to inspire them, but it could. I hope it does. Uh, but that's not a requirement for me at all. I just hope that they find meaning. And that's not a meaning in the real world. That's not a picture in their mind. But it's something that wouldn't be there if I didn't put it there. Mm. That's what I kind of think is beautiful about art. Because I feel the world is a little bit of a... A lot of the world is a pretty empty place. There's a lot of things that are beautiful in the world, but there's a lot of things that aren't. And there's, you know, other than what human beings put into the world, most of it is fairly cold. And I think one of the most amazing things you can do with your life is put something into the world that wouldn't be there and put something into the world that makes it beautiful. And I don't mean beautiful as in good or sweet or uh, makes you smile, but it's something worth being there and it makes the world a little bit more um i guess a little more human you know i, I don't want to say that humans are the greatest things in the universe but it's something that humans can do like humans can make art and that makes the world a little bit more special i think mm. so if if people can connect to it and people can feel this is something that's there and i know it wouldn't be there you know, if I didn't make it, you know, that's that's about the only goal I could ever have. And I, I will consider myself profoundly successful. Can that connection come at a variety of levels? And I ask that because uh, this record has a lot of moments where, for me, the the kind of overriding characteristic is its, uh, you know, its kind of happiness and and joy and just a feeling of, uh, you know, there's 
uh, in a lot of places as a really you know kind of locked in groove and just sonically it really speaks to movement as much as uh, in some places to me as much as a kind of uh, like intense focused listening I mean I, fe- I feel like it hits in the body as well so I wonder if, if people can have that experience yeah. on levels other than just mental so yeah I am the most open minded person in the world so when I say uh, you know, I want a connection or I want people to experience something they wouldn't experience otherwise. You're right. I mean, it's more than a variety. It's an infinite number of things. It's absolutely anything. Um, it's something, and you're you're right on about the idea of movement. Uh, that's why I'm not a novelist or a painter or uh, anything like that. It's because it does move and it happens in time. It's one of the only art forms that that does that you know dance does that as well and there are a couple other ones that do but you know music has a beginning and an end and a middle and it can make you move uh it can make you feel something i i'm always a little bit wary of saying i want anybody to feel a certain way or even saying a song feels a certain way i don't ever say that like i wouldn't say that this song feels feels something or that feels something though the really interesting part about it is that Music really can cause people to do that, and it does that to me very strongly. Um, but I think that the really beautiful stuff can get beyond that. I think it, it can become not an emotion, but uh, and not really a feeling either, closer to a feeling, but something just a lot more general. It's just uh, kind of maybe knowledge of yourself or feeling that you're alive. And you're right on about the making you want to move thing. Do you know what I mean? I think what the moments that I feel are very profound to me, I can become supremely aware of what's happening within me. Like, I can hear my heartbeat sometimes, you know, during those moments between when I have my eyes closed. Or I can feel other people around me, or I can feel blissfully unaware of the people around me. And some of the things you said about the making you move part and the, the focus part, That just kind of comes out, you know, I, I take it really seriously. There's the waxing poetic type person that's talking to you now, but there's also the person that feels like, oh man, this is really nice sounding, and I just love playing like this. And that's really true of this record. When it came out in the studio, it was really pleasurable. It was a really difficult thing to do, you know what I mean? I, I'm glad it sounds happy to you because it's supposed to but it was a really difficult process you know I mean the tunes were really hard to learn and really hard to rehearse and it made me really happy when everybody was very comfortable and confident and could be very musical about everything they do and you know then there's a total other half of everything I've told you there's there's like the funky part you know what I mean there's there's the let's not be thinking about this and let's just be kind of funky and 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 feel like we can really play and feel like we're these bad dudes that can that can really hit this music and feel cool and that's that's really important music and that makes you feel good and that makes it great for us and i think those are the things that people really respond to that's the funny part some of these tunes we used to play some live gigs with a band very, very very similar to this in more of like rock club type of situations. And back then I was writing even more complex stuff. I mean, 
pretty complex stuff, very strange meters. And I, we played some gigs and people were dancing to it. And it, it, it blew my mind because from one half of my musical history, that was a big part of what I did uh, when I was in college and stuff like that, the kind of make people dance type of music. And it blew my mind that that came through where, where at that time, you know, it was a tough thing to do to play these grooves. And it kind of amazed me that other people could be like, oh, they're dancing in nine. And that's, that's really great. So yeah, to answer your question, it, any reaction is great. I mean, I don't need somebody to sit there and listen. Um, you know, it would be great if somebody danced to this CD. I would be surprised if somebody did. You know, it's really hard to look at your own work. It's it's just so hard. I don't know when if somebody puts this on, they think, you know, this part's really rocking, and I'm I want to get up out of my chair. I I just can't have another person's perspective. I spent so much time with this music listening to it and I did all the mixing myself which took about a year uh, maybe not a year but it took a long time and I took it really seriously so my perspective is completely messed up you know I mean when I finished mixing it I thought it sounded really kind of amateur I was like oh you know <laughs> okay this is okay and then a couple of months later when I had the uh, you know I put on iTunes or whatever and and then I actually ripped the MP3s and I didn't listen to it for a while. And then I listened to it again and I said, oh, okay, you know, I'm listening to this in my car stereo now and this sounds really great. Um, but I never felt like dancing, so I, mean, I, I just can't even fathom what other people are, are going to hear. So it's, it's cool that you say that and I would love people to dance. I, I would be surprised if people did, but that would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> interesting you know to hear you talk about the record and about about your approach to music because i think if people are hearing this album you know kind of throughout our conversation but i think if they weren't it would be very easy to believe that what we're talking about is like a string quartet or a symphony oh. or something you know some some kind of difficult for them to relate to piece of music because of the in, like the intensity with which you're addressing it and yet the album is 
I think in many ways, very, very relatable, which by, by which I don't mean simple or dumbed down or anything, but I mean, it's not, I think this is an album that you could give to many people, uh, regardless of whether or not they self-identify with the genre that's in the title of this show. Mm-hmm. And you could give it to many people and they would dig it because, I mean, it. Okay. I think at the root, it's just, you know, it's it's just good music that's fairly easy to approach. Well, uh, I, I agree. You know, uh, I think it sounds nice. You know, I think it sounds, there's a lot of jazz out there that doesn't, and that's okay. That's great, you know. There's there's some stuff out there that's very difficult to listen to, and I love it. I don't listen to it all for that much time. Do you know what I mean? You can learn a lot from that stuff, and it can really open your mind, but it might not necessarily be pleasurable. And it's interesting you mentioned that, because before I recorded the album, I had to, of course, write all the songs on the album, and... I generally don't try to do anything in music, you know what I mean? I don't I don't have that I, I like to be free from a goal. Obviously there's a goal to have the charts done by the time the guys are sitting in the rehearsal room or in the studio reading them. But other than that I try not to. But I did at one point think I want to be able to sing everything. I want everything to be singable. I want everything to be beautiful. And I don't know if anybody else would pick up on it, but I was listening to a lot of Stevie Wonder at the time. I think Stevie Wonder is a really big influence on me in a lot of ways. And I think that I wanted to have a little bit of a singing quality. I wanted to be melodic. And I think that that was successful. I I wanted to do that. That was probably one of the only goals I had. It's really difficult for me to write something in a meter, that stays the same. And that's not because I want to challenge anybody. And it's not because I want to challenge myself. Um, and it's not because I want to prove anything. I mean, that's, there's nothing to prove there. It's been done so, so well by so many people, but the music that comes out of me that I want to compose, it always has to be at a different rhythm. The, The notes come out in a certain way. I feel that really often someone will be playing along by themselves and come up with this great line and and play it and they say oh I want to write this down and then they you know they write out on their piece of paper 44 four bar 44 four bar 44 four bar how do I fit it in here and that's great a lot of music that come comes out incredible that way and there's there's uh, so much 44 music out of there that's out there that's incredible but the music doesn't come out of me that way at all or or I don't want to do that. I don't want to say, oh, this is a line that has nine beats. Let me, let me, uh, you know, add a couple rests until I can get to the next bar that makes any sense. That's a totally cool way to write, but I don't want to do that. But when that happens, sometimes you can lose people a little bit and I can lose myself. I can write something that is completely natural and then sit down to play it. And it's the difficulty of the line overpowers the beauty of the line in my mind. So I would think that that would happen to the listener too. So at one point I said, okay, this stuff's going to come out a little bit, maybe hard to approach. Let's at least make the melody beautiful and let's make it singable and let's make it relatable. So I did do that. You know, I did try to make it relatable and 
I think it that that part worked pretty well. I think I think a lot of people could like it, and I like that. That's a good thing. mentioned stevie who's one of the kind of foundations of my musical experience also and uh, i wonder if listening to all that stevie had any influence on your decision to play Rhodes on this record maybe you know what i mean uh it's it's really hard to know why you make decisions i i definitely didn't say i'm gonna copy stevie or stevie sure. did that so i'm gonna i'm gonna play like stevie um I think when you play music, the things that you love come out, and I don't really make many attempts to understand how or why. Uh, there's this Brad Mel that once said something in an interview that kind of, you know, that I agree with, and it was, you know, a lot of people come out to me and say, should I, should I transcribe bird solos? And Brad said, if you love it, or he said, I don't even remember what he said, but the point was, do what you love and what you love will come out of you. You know, a lot of people think this way and it, it really, really speaks to me that just, um, and it, it's kind of re related to the idea of being new all the time, which is, as you know, just such a central focus of people in jazz that you have to do something new unless you're in that school of jazz that always wants to do something old that, that happens too. And that's great. You know, jazz is supposed to be new. And that's a defining characteristic of jazz. But trying to be new is something that I don't feel is the right thing to do, you know, it, for me. So all I can do is love what I love and then try to be as open-minded as I can. Do you know what I mean? It's hard as a jazz guy, especially the way jazz education works. It's hard to let yourself just play what you love. Do you know what I mean? Because jazz is very competitive in a way. You know, a lot of jazz, the best jazz players aren't competitive. The best jazz players love people that are trying their best to play jazz because that's a beautiful thing. And it's hard to do. It's hard to live in the world and say, I'm just going to play jazz. And that's that's my life. So hard to do. Let me just uh, maybe break into that to... to 
kind of divorce the idea of, for example, the roads from yeah, some yeah. specific influence, but to ask instead, were there kind of sonic needs on the record or something you were hearing in the music that, that made you say, okay, that's, this is the vehicle for this particular album for me as a player. In a way, um, I had been playing Rhodes for a while before this. Uh, there was a, okay, the real answer to the question is it happened because it was fairly practical. The, fir- the first thing that made me really play Rhodes was the fact that you couldn't find an in-tune piano in the city. <laughs> it's totally true. I could either be completely subject to wherever I'm performing and... And it really sounds bad. You know, you go to jam sessions sometimes, and it's very depressing. I haven't. There are a few jam sessions where I play a piano in the city where I don't feel bad about myself afterward. And, you know, I've heard recordings of myself playing on the same piano. I was like, oh, you know, that's fine. You know, I played played good, but, but when I'm there, I just feel kind of bad about myself. This this doesn't sound very very good. So. I kind of dedicated myself mostly to this Rhodes idea because you could control that. Like I loved being in control of that. And some guys I was listening to were doing that. So I started doing that, you know, quite a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago. I didn't give up the piano completely, but for my creative products projects, I became pretty much focused on Rhodes. So when the music came out, I was playing, playing that. And it just by default was the way the project went mm-hmm. because that's what I was always doing. And it's funny because it led to other decisions. Do you know what I mean? I really, really kind of labored over the decision to have acoustic bass or electric bass. It was a tough choice because the acoustic bass sounds really great. And as soon as you switch it to an electric bass, it just, the volume level goes up, I feel. And I wasn't sure if I was ready to let go that much to just really, you know, start being that funky, I guess. Um, but it went that way, do you know what I mean? Playing the Rose led to that, and obviously there's two electric guitars on the album, which is pretty uncharacteristic <laughs> of jazz music. That that was central to what I've done. I, I just that came out of nothing. I mean, it came out of a jam, and I invited a bunch of people, and then two guitars show up, and then they played a unison line, and it sounded great. I was like, okay, I've got two guitars in my band. Let's let's keep this going. And then it became part of the creative process where I would, you know, I'd write three-part counterpoint with them in a sax at times. And that became something I really loved. And that playing with the Rhodes felt right. And I've, I've been doing that with this particular group ever since. And, you know, I love it. Yeah, it is amazing how much how much can be happening at any one time, given the saxophone, two guitar players, the bass player and the roads yeah. all there in the mix at any one moment. Uh, it, it strikes me that it might be a bit of a challenge to figure out how to navigate all those people around one another, but but kind of a fun challenge. Yeah, it's a tough challenge. Uh, it's funny. Uh, you know, there are some tunes that had more lines written. It's really, it's really tough to sit at home and write for a bunch of guys. It, it really is. Uh, especially, you know, at, at my, my development, I haven't written... 10 albums worth of music. I haven't gone through the experience of writing 10 tunes and then rehearsing them and then playing them. I haven't done that for 10 years. So I had, you know, I kind of, at least for this record, I over-prepared a lot. So everything was written out. I had every everything going and ready and prepared. And then, you know, you sit in rehearsal and say, okay, don't play that bass line. Play, play whatever you want. Or don't do that. Do, do whatever you want. 
But, you know, the musicians are great, and they, they handled it right, and with enough, you know, effort, <laughs> it can be done. So I, it turned out okay, I think, you know? It, it's, what's really interesting is that there's three harm, harmonic instruments. There's two guitars and a piano, all of which can be playing chords at the same time, which any piano player or guitar player will tell you is a pretty difficult thing to navigate uh, luckily, you know, we, we handled that okay. I thought of those guys as lead instruments, so they only comped when they comped for each other or something like that. That worked out naturally, so I would stop comping when they comped. And with the written out parts of the tunes, you know, it worked out because I put a lot of work into it. Sure. Yeah. It's almost like a cliche these days to say that jazz albums, you know, are rehearsed in one day and recorded the next day. And this doesn't seem like music that uh, lends itself all that well to not having practiced it. So I wonder how, how you pulled that off. Yeah, it doesn't, especially at my level of skill. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm relatively young, I feel, and playing this type of stuff perfectly the first time is something that I don't have the ability to do. I wrote it, so I had a big leg up on the other guys. <laughs> so that wasn't the biggest problem. But it is tough. You know what I mean? That That's the problem. And it's a problem that I dealt with on the album because it did take – four or five rehearsals which i think for for a jazz record in jazz record terms that's a pretty good amount and we played a gig and it was a little bit tedious at times which is a bummer you know you don't want to be tedious you want every part of playing music to be an enjoyable process if you're spending an hour that's not something you're enjoying playing music that's unfortunate it has to happen but it's unfortunate and you know it's unfortunate but it was worth it. It was necessary. And, you know, I hope someday I'm one guy, I'm a guy that can play it perfectly the first time. Those guys do exist. And those guys I really look up to. It takes a lot of work to be one of those guys. You have to, you know, that's a skill that you have to develop specifically. <laughs> you know, I need to be able to sight read this well, sight, and then basically have the memory to remember it so well the first time that it comes out well the first time. And I really admire people that can do that. I can't right now, so I have to rehearse. <laughs> but hopefully someday. talk about uh how you leave space for uh, improvisation inside this music 
it's written out in a way. You know, there's a there's a blowing section. The, the charts are usually three pages long. They're pretty pretty intricate. The blowing was pretty uncomplicated. Not very complicated on on the record. You know, there there's a couple. I think they're mainly kind of vampy type of things that you know one tune good and plenty is just this little six six four groove that happens forever and that probably led to what I feel is one of the more spectacular improvised sections on the record you know people at home if you want to hear some really great guitar playing and and there's an amazing bass solo those guys I, I, I listen to that part of the record I listen to those guitar solos I mean it's kind of not a solo it's, they're both soloing at the same time and I'm just saying wow this is this is really great I can listen to this anytime and feel so good and feel that it's great music um you know, those are, those are, I don't even know if they're chords. I just kind of wrote out a, a little piano line and and everything kind of just fell in fell in there. And then most of the tunes are just, you know, I wrote a few chords down, which were relatively simple, and then you can have a lot of freedom if, if you write just a few chords. And then, and then you know, there's, sometimes there's some intricate way to get back to the composed part, and, you know, it's hard to compose so right. with a lot of work. It, you know, you, you do the best you can, and I hope, I hope it came out well. Will you talk about who's on this record with you? Sure. Uh, well, Jaleel Shaw plays sax. He plays the alto, who is just such a powerful, powerful player. He plays on three tunes. He doesn't play on, on the whole record, and he really brought something to those tracks. He, he, he played it with power and force and energy, and I, I'm so thankful he could do it, and he really took it to another level. There are two guitar players, uh, uh, Brad Williams and Justin Sabaj, both guys I went to school with, both guys I spent a lot of time with, and, you know, they worked hard, and they played the crap out of the music, and it sounded great. Garrett Brown plays the drums, also went to my school, uh, you know, incredible drummer, Got had lots of energy, can handle the more complicated rhythms with grace and with, a, you know, a natural feel. And Michael League played the electric bass, and I can't say enough about him. I just met him on this, pro- uh, on this project, Brad recommended him, and he's, I, you know, I couldn't have gotten a better player. I, if I would... You know, if I were Herbie, I would hire him in a second. Finding the bass player took some time and took some experimentation. And like I said, I was kind of debating the acoustic or electric thing. Because it's really tough to find a guy that can really, really groove, but still be able to play some relatively complicated stuff well and gracefully and naturally. And you know he really did it. He's 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 the best electric bass player I could I can think of, and he he added a lot to the music. So I'm lucky to have all those guys. And there's one more saxophone player on the. Oh yeah, as well. Eric uh, Eric Neveloff. Um, I I actually just met him for this project too. He went to my school. He was another recommendation. He was around, and he played great. And his tone is beautiful, and he's a hard worker. He's you know, he's by far the youngest one in the group, so he doesn't have a bunch of credentials or a, a big list of accomplishments, but he sounds great, and I'm so thankful to have him, too. One thing I really uh, uh, really dig that I discovered while uh, researching for this interview is your uh, Tune Today 
oh, yeah. compositional project, which is a fantastic idea, and I was hoping you could tell folks about it and why you started doing it. Well, uh, it comes back to this record a little bit. Uh, you touched on the idea of needing rehearsals to pull something like this off before, and it did require rehearsals, and there were times when it was a little bit stressful and a little bit... Uh, difficult, you know, not just the playing, but the organizing six guys to get in the same room at the same time, hardworking musicians is tough to do. And, you know, I actually started the kind of germ of this project started the day before the recording. Uh, there were two days of recording and, you know, I was relatively stressed. You know what I mean? I'm a really laid back guy most of the time, but for me, I was stressed. You know, I was actually thinking about stuff, which I generally don't, you know, think over things a billion times in my head. And I actually started, I read uh, Kenny Werner's Effortless Mastery, you know, because I had it and I never read it. I picked it up and, you know, if if people know about Kenny, it's about, you know, not making anything painful. It's about uh, not... You know, not making it work, just feeling that it's good now. And so I was like, okay, this is great. And something in there says, just he, write something down. I don't, I don't remember it. You know, I, I read this book that the day before the recording, and then never picked it up again. But he said, you know, force yourself to write four tunes, and then uh, force yourself to feel happy about it. You know, not not force yourself, but like write four tunes. I give you permission to feel happy about it. Because I promise you they're good. You know, that's a big thing Kenny Ward does. He has these little meditation tapes, and they're great. Uh, the presentation's a little funny, but they're great. And they say, you are amazing. You are really good. And that's a really cool thing to, to think. And so he says, I give you permission to think they're great. Uh, or something like that. And so I wrote three tunes that night, and two of them two of them we recorded. So they made it to the record. And, and it came out, you know, it was really funny to me that it worked out so well. It was a blessing and more matter on the record. I wrote the day before, you know, nothing more than maybe 30 minutes. And I was like, okay, all right, I can, I can do that. And then maybe a few months ago I said, well, I like that idea. It's really tough as a composer and an artist in any way to let go of making something perfect. And on this record, I spent a lot of time trying to make it better. And, you know, that's, it's an important process when you're being artistic. I also wrote a couple novels that no one's ever going to read because I don't know if I want them to. And I learned a lot about creation, you know, in novel writing, in, in actually write, in any type of writing. You know, it's really important to write something down and then get really obsessive about the editing. You don't get obsessive about the writing, you get obsessive about the editing. And that really informed the process of this record. I mean, I, I wrote stuff down quickly and then really tinkered for a long time. And then I felt, well, let's let's balance that with this other half. And this other half, I decided, well, a tune a day, that's 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 doable. And so I decided to put it online because that's that's another step. You know, the point of the project is to not be self-conscious about it. It's to say, as soon as I'm comfortable with everybody hearing this then I can really get to kind of a, a different level of being creative. You know, it's not this profound project. You know, it's, it's my little thing to do. But it's helpful in that way, I think. Because artists have a lot of problems getting obsessive about perfectionism. 
And that happened in up going up to this record and even in the mixing process. I was really, really perfectionist. And then I then I learned, you know, I read a bunch about mixing and then oh, you know, after I spent a year doing it, I learned that this is really common. You gotta you gotta make the choice within a day and then you'll be happy with it. Trust us. Right. You know, you, you can make the same decision in a day and it's gonna be great as all these decisions you make in a month. And okay, you know, I, I know that now. So how do I get myself to act that way? How do I get myself to make decisions quickly? And it happened with this, you know, it was a problem when I, well, not a problem, but it was something that happened when I was composing the tunes on this disc. You know, you write this stuff that you feel really great about. You know, composing is such a, a funny process because you can write four bars and just start walking around the apartment just smiling thinking ah oh, i made these great four bars this tune is going to be great and then you sit down and you play it a few times you're like oh it feels really good really good really good and then you, you get so built up that you don't want to write the next bar because you have these four bars and then the worst is when you have whatever 25 bars and you need 27 and you, or you need an ending or you need a intro or you, there's just something wrong and you can just sit there being oh <laughs> you know, you spend all day like that, and then rehearsal comes along and you say, okay, I'll just slap something in there, and it, it turns out great. Right. So, you know, it's the same as a kid doing a paper in high school or in college. The, the, great, the stuff is there, and it can come out quickly, and it's a lot better for it to come out quickly. And this is jazz music after all, so, you know, it's a little... It's a little funny to be spending eight hours composing a, a jazz chart. So, you know... Being a musician is a is a journey. So this tuna day project is trying to be a little bit more quick in my decisions and a little more free. You know, every artist, almost. I mean, I don't know about everyone. Every artist is self conscious about what they do. I feel at least the best ones are, and you know that can be that can help people be creative in a certain way, and it can be very detrimental. I think more often it's a negative to the creative process. So I think it's a cool little project to do a tune a day, force myself to do it, and then just get over it. You know, anybody can can look at it. I Right now, the way the website's set up, you can't hear it, which is unfortunate because it, it feels like I'm kind of copping out a little bit because... No one's really gonna, you know, unless there's some obsessive jazz pianist out there or somebody who can hear four staves of music who has that ability, no one's gonna know what it sounds like. Right. Which is unfortunate in a way. So I can't completely, I can still kind of say, okay, today I, you know, this one's really bad. You know what I mean? This one's really <laughs> bad, but I don't, I don't have to worry about it. But, you know, part of it is to not feel anything is really bad. Sure. Uh, and it's helping, and I and I hope I hope to I hope to keep it going. Originally, I had this plan to do a thousand in a year, which I think is totally possible. But you know, I went I, I got caught again. Do you know what I mean? I, I for a while I was writing these great little not great, but you know these nice little twelve bar tunes with maybe two lines, and then I I got so excited that you know oh, this this is close to being this epic not epic, but this. Nice, complicated, really legit, strong, lot of content statement. So I'm down to a tune a day again. So I was, I was keeping three <laughs> tunes a day for a little while. But as long as I can do one a day, I'll feel pretty happy.
since you can look back now till back to November, I guess, and see the see a, a song every single day, do you see any any arc through them, or is there any kind of development well, or through line or periods of days where it's you can see that oh, these are building off the germ of an idea that I'm working yeah, on? Yeah, well, I got, I've got this gig um, in a couple of days, and uh, you know it's significantly more time than the record was. So this band really rehearsed the nine tunes in this record a bunch. And we can play those, but it needs a lot more. So I uh, I have a bunch of new tunes that I got, you know, so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll just wait to the last minute. And I got all these tunes to work, work on, and then I'll just pick some from these 70 that I've written over the past couple months. And uh, so I had to look at, you know, all 70 in a day, and I definitely, I definitely did. So I was like, okay, you know, there's obviously there's an arc toward complexity. They started out simple, and they're getting more complex. But other than that, yeah, I mean, I, I discovered more than ever which notes I like. Do you know what I mean? I don't mm-hmm. want to say keys because I don't really think about keys. You know, I, if I have traditional tonal movement in my chords, it's not on purpose. It just comes out. You know, I don't have a dominant chord going to a one chord. I, you know, I just don't do that ever. Um, but I've noticed that some shapes that I, I, I like a lot better and... and that's an eye-opening experience. I don't want to be doing that. There was a time in my life when I thought that was the worst. You know, what I mean, if I play the same C minor seventh voicing twice in a gig, something's wrong with me. Which was the most idiotic thing right. to ever think. <laughs> I mean, everybody does that, and it's great. Do you know what I mean? That's what Herbie does. Herbie, I thought Herbie was, you know, Herbie's amazing. But I thought, you know, Herbie every time he sat down to the piano would just come up with something new. And I remember I learned at some point, oh, Bill Evans wrote out the voicings for Autumn Leaves. He plays it the same every time. I was like, oh, man, like, <laughs> what a, what's wrong with this guy? And it was obviously the silliest thing in the world. I mean, you got to do that, and, and it's beautiful. It's, you know, you work out, just like we're talking now, we don't invent a new word every time we want to talk. We, we have the words. We have the English language. There's plenty of words to choose from. And there are guys out there that invent words, and that's that's great for them. But you don't have to invent a new word every time you want to say a new sentence. Um, but yeah, I've, I've I've gotten a little picture of my vocabulary, and uh, you know I don't know how I feel about it. I'm trying to feel good about everything, but I'm like okay, I don't think I'm going to do you know November fifth and December seventh because you know eh, I can't have two tunes like that in right. one gig. So, you know, they're close enough to be like, okay, I'm not going to do both of those. But, yeah, yeah, it's a learning experience. Yeah. And part of the point is not to feel bad. You know, there's was, there was a time where in a few days in a row, you know, a lot of B-flat minor chords started started to tune. And I would sit down the next day and, and that would happen again. I'd be like, oh, this is wrong. So I'm going to try something else. And that's what I did most of the time. And, you know, maybe that's against the rules of my little thing. So I'm supposed to not worry about anything. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. learned a bunch about myself. You said uh, toward the beginning of the interview that you don't say to people uh, you need to feel a certain way about this piece or this should feel like this. But I wonder about that because um, I was going to say obviously, maybe it's not obvious. Uh, my guess would be that you write pieces thinking like, you know, well, this one is kind of more like a ballad or this one is... I mean, it sounds kind of darker, or this is this up-tempo funk tune. I mean, the it's 
almost impossible to think about music, especially as a composer, without having some kind of guide in that way. So I just wanted I wonder if you could flesh out how you how you separate the intentionality of a composition from what expectation you think the listener might have when they hear it. Uh, it's a hard question. Uh I I don't really know how much intention how many intentions I have when I do something. I I honestly don't. You know, I what happened for these tunes in particular was that over a period of a long time that I wasn't really composing a ton and that wasn't a big part of my life, I would sit down and come up with a couple chords or a, an ostinato bass line or something like that and write it down and then go away. And often what happens is that you will feel inspired at a certain moment. Um, you know, I don't really believe that much about attaching emotion music, but I believe very strongly in attaching moods and things like that. So, you know, sometimes a mood will inspire uh, a little germ of something. So what happened a lot in this is I had a lot of little things that were a couple bars long, a groove or something like that, or a couple chords or a melody. And then I would come back to it another day and then after a period of time, it would turn into something. It would turn into a funk song. Or it would turn into a slower song or something like that. And, you know, of course, sometimes I think, oh, I've written a bunch of songs at this tempo. Uh, there was a period that I wrote in nine all the time because it, sound, it sounded great. You know, it sounds awesome. And I don't know why I, I started avoiding it because I had three or four songs. You know, there's a time the band's repertoire had like nine songs. So if you have two or three in, in nine <laughs> It becomes a little bit, you, know, you feel bad, wrong. Something's just wrong. Um, so, yeah, th that comes into it. Oh, I've, I've written a bunch of these type of songs, so I'm going to go in this direction. And a lot of times it's, a lot of times it's, oh, I I just heard uh, Have a Talk with God or something. You, you hear a Stevie Wonder song and you're just like, okay. And then your body's just moving at a certain tempo and then, you know, the the melody comes out either complicated or not complicated, depending on what you were listening to or what mood you're in. Um, connecting that to the way people, I want them to listen to it, um, I would like to believe that I'm being honest in saying that there's no connection. I, I'm not sure it's true. You know, deep down, I might want there to be a connection, um, but... But if you write a tune with, with like a really kick-ass groove, mm -hmm. I mean, do you expect people to slowly fall asleep while listening to it? Or, I mean, no. you must you must believe that it's gonna like. Why would you write well, that kick-ass groove in the first place if you didn't believe it was gonna have some kind of? In all honesty, effect? I'm fairly selfish when thinking about music, and some people will gasp when I say that, or gasp when other people say that. But honestly, and I don't really feel bad about it, but I feel I should feel bad about it. I don't care that much about the audience. You know, a lot of people don't, and I'm sorry, audience, about that. Please come to my shows. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the music just comes out, I think. Now, there are definitely songs that are nighttime songs, and there are definitely songs that are driving in a car songs. And, and I write them, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I would love to be driving in a car listening to this song. And then as they progress, I have that association with them. You know, I associate, oh, I know this song's going to be awesome in a car. So I'll play in a certain way that makes it more conducive to that. 
um, you know, or, you know, this is a kick-ass groove. Basically, I want to have a kick-ass groove all the time. <laughs> so that, that's, that's just something that we're, we're all trying to be kick-ass all the time. But, you know, some songs are slower, but, you know, they got to have a good groove. And, and I guess it's X amount of songs should be really funky and, and, you know, you don't have all funky songs. So it just kind of naturally works out that some are that way, some aren't that way. But but you don't ever think when you're writing or playing, even this, you know, with the band in the studio where there is no one listening except the engineer, you don't ever think when that kick-ass groove is going on that, man, this this is going to be really fun for people to hear. Or yeah, no, I do. I, I think about that. I guess uh, you know that I'm thinking when I'm answering the question, I'm thinking you know during the creative part, you know, yeah. and, and I think I think you're right. You know, there are definitely times when when I'll come up with a piano groove especially or you know a, a groove that will have some chords in the right hand and some some awesome little line in my left hand sometimes i picture myself on stage and being like and i could play this solo and and you know really I, I can see people out there i used to do that a lot more when i was playing even more funky stuff because you'll go to a show and a guy will you know play a, a Rhodes groove or a clavinet groove by himself and everybody is grooving to it and and you know, I put myself thinking about that guy and be like, that is a beautiful thing. That yeah. is, I would love to be that guy. So, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm a constant dreamer. So, you know, I dream of playing really well and I dream of being in a club where people are really, really paying attention. Um, but I guess I try my best. I don't really try my best, but generally I don't. I don't think about what it's going to be like for other people while I'm still composing. Mm. At least when I'm trying to be pure, you know, there's no need to be pure all the time. But you know, I, I try to not have intentions. Uh, but what happens is my feelings at that time or my mood at that time, I think, comes across very strongly, and I think that's a cool thing. If somebody could feel closer to me or feel closer to the person they're sitting next to when they hear it, you know, I like those types of feelings better than other feelings. So mm. definitely I, I do, I say I don't have any intentions and every intention or anything that could happen is good. Clearly on a less ethereal philosophical level, I would rather the thing the person feels is I feel close to you and I love you to the person next to them versus I want to hurt you. Do you know what I mean? So right. I, I'm lying if I say I don't care at all about the way it makes people feel. Um, but I feel very strongly like I want them to have the reaction that they want to have. Sure. Yeah. So I don't mean this as a smart-ass segue, but as, <laughs> as people are listening to this interview, it's uh, toward the end of January, and I know that in the first week of February you have a gig coming up. Do you want to tell folks about that? Yeah, well, uh, I got a couple record release shows, and, and on February 4th, I'm going to be playing with the group at Something Jazz Club. I think it's at 9 o'clock, and uh, we'll be playing a warm-up gig before that, so we should be uh, we should be uh, playing pretty well at that point. So I hope I hope everybody can make it out. Nice. You know, it's a nice club. It's a nice place to spend some time, and uh, I'll be giving away free CDs for anybody that comes, so that's a little nice reason to go. <laughs> My guest is Tom Wetmore, and his new record on his own Crosstown Records is called The Desired Effect. It's been really fun talking to you about the music. I thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much, Jason. I really appreciate it.
That's music from Tom Wetmore's CD, The Desired Effect. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Please visit thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member. And don't forget, at thejazzsession.com, all 342 episodes of this show, plus some extra things, are archived there for your listening enjoyment whenever you want them. You can download them. You can stream them. Uh, they're all there. There's a handy little list on the left-hand side, alphabetical order, last name first, of all the artists who've been on the show. And there's also at the bottom of the left-hand side of the page, there's a category list. So if, for example, you'd like to see all the drummers or all the trombonists or whatever who've ever been on the show, you can just drop down the category menu and select whichever category you like. There's also some jazz festival categories and other things. So please do check that out and uh, dig through the archives because if you're recently tuned into the jazz session, there have been lots of people that you probably missed and you might find some people that you'd like to hear from back there in the archives. So go do that and enjoy yourself. And meanwhile, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the jazz session. Bye. Bye. Bye.